They are using all kinds of symbology. What is at stake? It is a big idea. A new world order where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind. My question to you is, in any of your government jobs, have you ever been briefed on the subject of UFOs? And if you have, when was it? What were you told? Well, if I had been briefed on that, I'm sure it was probably classified and I couldn't talk about it. When I got out in 1989, we had cataloged 57 different species. We walked over to one side of the lab and he said, by the way, we've discovered a base. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Greetings and salutations to all my fellow Skywatchers listening tonight and each and every week right here on Skywatchers Radio. I welcome you all. I thank you all for being here. No matter where you are, if you're on planet Earth, if you're listening intergalactically, if you're on another dimension, however you made your way possibly here to this show tonight, I thank you. Thank you for being here, and we are broadcasting live to you from New Logic Studios down in Miami, Florida. As usual, I am Angel Espino, one of the hosts on Skywatchers Radio, and with me, as usual, at least uh, normally for the last few years, is the one and the only, my hetero radio life mate. That's right, you call him Alan, we call him Weiler, some call him Tres Leche, some uh, some call him uh, Alan Weiler. Welcome to the show, my friend. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing amazingly amazing, actually, tonight. Uh, I am conscious. I took a power nap midday just so I could be here tonight. You're conscious. That's a start. Yes. Yes, yes. yes. You're, that, you're awake. That's definitely a start. And I am excited about... Are you unconscious? All the other shows? Most of the time, yeah. Most of the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, yeah. yeah. And uh, that had voice... Sugar. Oh, yeah, the sugar. There you go. That's good. Yeah, I've had my sugar. I'm belting off the walls. Ha, 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 ha. That other voice you heard, there is the one and only, the unscrupable, the untamable, the one and only... Hold on, hold on, hold on. It's defined unscrupable. What is unscrupable? Can I finish before you start asking me questions? It means I'm awesome. Exactly. I was going to end with, and it means the awesome one, herself, Crystal Storm. (laughs) What's up, guys? I missed you last week. We missed you, too. You lie. You made fun of me the whole show, didn't you? I'm going to go back and listen to the rerun. I wasn't here on the show last <laughs> week, actually. So actually, uh, we, I, uh, we did a whole rerun last week. What are you doing, week. Slacker? Oh, okay. Slacker, we, uh, oh. Uh, we, we went into repay, didn't we? Yeah, we did a rerun last week. Oh, we, Apologies which, to which our listeners for that, by the way. Which rerun was it? Because, you know, we have some really, really good ones. Which and rerun was some it? that's so all really, really good ones. We just kill it when we get on air. We just yeah, we kill do. it. That's why our reruns are the bomb. That's right. But you know what is even better than a rerun? A live what? show. Being live. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, we're here and we're ready. Woohoo! We're I'm live, so baby. Excited. If you guys want to join, I'm excited about the guest tonight. I can't wait. Oh, we're going to have a, a fun time tonight with our guests. But check this out. If you guys want to join in and ask any questions to our guest, to, to the other guy about his Tres Leche obsession, whatever, you want to ask me anything, DCS, you want to ask her anything, you know, call in 786-245-8127 is always the call-in number. Again, that's 786-245-8127. We, of course, would love to hear from you. 
So, uh, but joining us tonight is, uh, somebody who is very interesting indeed. In fact, uh, you know, he covers a subject that I'm, uh, highly interested in, in a lot of his works. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you guys know that because we've talked about it here on the show before about my theory of Roswell and what I think really happened at Roswell and how I think there is a Nazi connection to Roswell and, mm-hmm. um, you know, how the, they were into the occult. We know that much, at least. And uh, the gentleman who's going to join us tonight is uh, heavily into this subject, and I've been really uh, looking forward to talking to him for a long time, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun uh, to have him on the show. Mr. Peter Lavenda is going to be with us, folks, and he's going to join us in about 25 minutes, 20 minutes around there, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of fun with Peter. Excellent. Online. He should be a good. Yeah. He should be a real good, real good guest. Yep. And yeah, uh, we have. I really uh, want to pick his brain because it's a, such a great topic, and we talked like Jackal said. We talked about it a lot on here, but I mean, that's just we can. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited. Excited. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Now, you, you guys, have you guys seen some of the reports of Hitler? Uh, surviving the you know the Holocaust and surviving you know the war and uh, going mm-hmm. to South America and stuff mm-hmm. like that and uh, there was a yes. report not long ago that actually uh, showed a photo of him and I guess uh, a person he took as a bride, poor soul. Hmm. In South America. Didn't see that one. Can't say, can't say yeah. I've seen that one. Sorry, no. Yeah, I'll look for it in a little bit here and I'll, hmm. uh, I'll share it with you so you can see it. Uh, he was a little bit older. Kind of doesn't you know he looks like Hitler, but doesn't. You know, when you age 10 years or whatever, 20 years, whatever this was, right. obviously you're not going to look exactly the same. So yeah. he's, he's mm-hmm. definitely Hitler-esque to this person, whoever this is, if it is Hitler. Interesting. Okay. That's now, here's the, here's, here's the kicker, though. Here's the kicker. The, the bride? The bride? Mm-hmm. Not Aryan. Not a white person. Don't tell me she was Jewish. No, not Jewish either. Okay. She was, uh, as uh, our good friend Donald Trump would say, she was a Hispanics or Latinos. <laughs> well, interesting, interesting. You know, I think some of the best conspiracy theories we'll never be able to prove, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah, that's that's probably one of them. But, uh, yeah, that that's probably going to be one of them. Uh, I mean, you talk about somebody who, I mean. <laughs> he needed to disappear and not be found. That that's the guy. <laughs> like yeah. you know, sniff of his location and that's it. You know, you're I done. Mean, the, the only way that so. that we'll be able to get any closure on uh, whether he lived or died or anything is if uh, like smoking gun evidence comes out where you know it's by the government itself and uh, they admit to some stuff that they knew about or whatever. You know, that, but that's never going to happen. No, no. It's no. not going to happen. I mean, so. that's not something that could no, happen. I mean, I mean, right, you can't say that you killed Osama bin Laden and then conveniently, you know, not have a body. <laughs> you can't. You right. couldn't pull that with him. Oh, not yeah. Like, all the time, not like we you know? couldn't do that. No. No, no. That's impossible. So, so, not, not with Hitler. But, I mean, yeah. I mean, but there are probably plenty of people. I mean, because I, I, I think that maybe he got away. And there were... There would have been, I think that, unfortunately, he probably would have had plenty of friends where he could have gotten out of the country and gotten hit wherever he went. I mean, especially if they were dabbling in the occult stuff. I mean, who knows? Look, I have no, uh, I got, look, I have, uh, you know, no argument whatsoever to uh, anybody who uh, wants to put up an argument saying that he survived. uh, Because I have no argument account it. Because, honestly, I think, uh, and I I do subscribe to the theory that he survived uh, the war. And he he escaped. And I think a lot of these guys uh, that are in power, like the Saddam Husseins and 
the Osama bin Ladens and all these characters who are, you know, big megalomaniac uh, dictators over the years. Once uh, the gig is up, I don't think they're killed or murdered or executed or whatever. I think they're just told, listen, relocate. Get the hell out of Dodge. Go. Be so, you know, be something somewhere else and, uh, you know, that's the end of it. And they take off before, you know, the, the, the stuff hits the fan, if you know what I mean. And, uh, into the that, crowd and fade away. Right, just fade away into the crowd. And a lot of these folks could do that because, you know, honestly, if you go, for example, like say Osama bin Laden, if he shaves his beard, he can go anywhere. Nobody's going to recognize right, Osama right. bin Laden. And let us not forget, he was trained by the CIA, so that right. man knows how to disappear. Right, so I nobody's going to recognize him. And I think them. a lot of those guys, too, they're not the I'm going to go down with the ship type personality. They're right. not. You know, they realize that they're losing the war. They're going to get the fuck out and forget everybody else. That's it. Exactly. Now, check this out. Peter Lavenda was born in 1950. He was uh, born in New York City. And uh, he, like we said, he was, he was best known for his books on uh, Nazism and the use of the occult and mystical practices. And uh, sources of, uh, and sources, and is an expert in the use of former Nazi scientists in the promotion of rocketry in the U.S., which is something I want to get into with him because, of course, Werner von Braun uh, is the, you know, the, look, the entire rocket program, the fact that we went to the moon, was built on that man's back. So, right then and there, that's a good start-off point for anything that we, we're going to, you know, get to with uh, Peter tonight, uh, because you know that is an, an interesting. You know, forget about the occult for a second. The fact that the United States government, when you know they went in and they did what they had to do, they brought all these scientists with them. The fact that they were used over here to fuel our, our, our space program, to go ahead and, and give us the space program that we now have, uh, that is telling into what goes on behind the scenes. Because I'm sure in 1950s and 1960s, most Americans had no idea that was going on. Right. Right, right, right. I mean, and who knows what else they gave us. I mean, I'm, you know, we know that they gave us, you know, all the technology and stuff, but obviously they were dabbling in the occult. So what right. else did we learn from them that we put into place? Um, you know, and, you know, Joseph Mengele was a bad dude. He was a oh, bad, yeah. bad dude, but yeah. he was a really smart dude, especially when it came to mind control and forms like that. Like, the Mengele grid is a scary thing. It is a scary thing how, like, down to a science he had for how to take somebody apart and put them back together the way he wanted. So I'm sure we got a lot of bad things from those scientists. Oh, no. I guess that's what, that's how we got Jason Bourne. That's probably right. how we yep. got Jason Bourne, and who knows what else, however many other super soldiers that are active to this yep. day. I mean, because I don't believe for a second that NK Ultra just stopped. You know? Oh, of course not. Not, not yep. for a second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Peter, born in the Bronx, a good old boy from the Bronx, check that out. He, was, uh, he lived in New York, Indiana, Chicago, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island before going to Malaysia, because that's exactly where you go after you live in Rhode Island and you <laughs> yes, live in New Hampshire. Like the, the next step after that is Malaysia, for sure. I mean, that's typical. Typical. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, that's what, that's where I would go. That's where else are going to go? Like, come yeah. on. I mean, where is it? Is there to go? Uh, he lived there for seven years, and uh, and he also has uh, an MA in uh, religious studies and Asian studies. So, I mean, he, the, the gentleman has been all over the world. He has studied all over the world. He knows... Not only the Nazism, but he knows culture, you know, worldwide. He has studied Asian cultures, you know, obviously Western culture, society. And, uh, you know, China, um, you know, plays a big part, I think, in uh, the cover-up of ufology. I think China plays a bigger part than a lot of folks uh, are, tend to, are led to believe, believe it or not. 
And I, even even in the Nazi era, I think China played a bigger part than they led, the, the lead us to believe. Hmm. Yes. I think China I knows some stuff. That. I think they do know some stuff. I absolutely do. But, I mean, China's not going to, you know, China will release anything when China is darn good and ready, and that's that. Of course. You know? I, I wonder so, if he knows. Like, uh, yeah, I could see that. Just because of that area, there has to be. Has right. To be. Now think about this. China has an amazing history, and I mean a rich history, amazing history with a lot of mythology. You know, one thing I want to definitely ask Peter is a little bit about their mythology and what could be translated or maybe carried over to ufology as a well, this could have been a UFO or this could have been ufology related, uh, but it's got you know over the years misunderstood to something else. Uh, maybe he has a kind of an answer for that because I think honestly, over our historical period in this planet, we're going to find out that a lot of the things that we believe are one thing are going to probably end up being something UFO related somehow. Hmm. Probably. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I'd, I would, I'd agree yeah, with that. I would. I would say some of it definitely. I mean, because it, there's just there's just too much history. There's too much history, and just the way that. Uh, mythology is told and religion is told and kind of where those stories develop from. Some of it, absolutely, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Without and of course, a doubt. I mean, you know, a, that we've never been visited, obvious BS, but we had to have been at some point. I absolutely believe in, you know, that level of involvement and how they were there and how it's affected, you know, the things that, like you were saying, the things that we believe now. I think mm-hmm. a lot of it probably, quite, quite, probably more than we think, I would, I would, I would actually guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, some of the books that uh, Peter's written, uh, check this out, he wrote The uh, Lovecraft Code, uh, The Hitler Legacy, A Nazi Occult in, Dis- in Dispora. Uh Let's see, what else? Uh, the Nine, A Sinister Forces, uh, Sinister Forces, A Grinsmory, I, I can't pronounce that word, damn it, of American Politics, Warcraft, Book One. Uh, let's see, Sinister Forces, uh, I guess, I want to read all these books. Oh, my God, I have to add them to my library immediately. <laughs> these all sound amazing. Uh, the Dark Lord. Okay, that sounds like a Star Wars book. i got to read that. That does. That definitely is. Right? it about Darth Vader? It's not about Darth Vader. No, it's not about Darth Vader. It's, uh, let's see, it's H.P. Lovecraft, Kenneth Grant, and the Typhonian Tradition of in Magic. Hmm, interesting. Ooh. Yeah. Which that's interesting coming on the heels of uh, Doctor Strange coming out this week. Wow! Magic. Wow! Oh, I'm so, so going to see Doctor uh, Strange on Friday. By the way, everybody, so I'll let you know how it is. I'm going oh, it looks so good, doesn't it? Oh, it looks, can't wait! I'm so excited. I'm, I mean, I'm interested in watching any movie with the Cumberbatch in it, but uh, this one looks really good. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's brilliant, and he looks so hot as Doctor Strange. Well, I don't know about <laughs> all that, but. He's the batch of cumber. Oh, He's the batch of cumber. <laughs> he is. It's cumber. So, it's cumber. Please understand that the applications for Chris's future husband have been altered, and there's a box that says, "Do you look like Doctor Strange?" And if you don't check it, I'm not looking. I will not <laughs> entertain your your application any further. I just want everybody to know that. He's definitely got a, he definitely got some uh, swag going on with the uh, the little. Uh, Gray on the sides there, like you know, it's funny because oh, uh, oh my god, it's his hair and his goatee. It's just like I'm not interested in him before he becomes Doctor Strange. Like once he becomes Doctor Strange, that's it. Before I don't care. 
You know, it's funny because I've read a lot of Doctor Strange as a kid. Uh, you know, I, I was, you know, I was never really into Marvel a whole lot as a kid, but I was into like someone with the more obscure characters. And uh, for mm-hmm. whatever reason, Doctor Strange always like uh, called to me because you know the magic aspect to it, the fact that it deals with other dimensions and other realities and stuff, and uh, you know all that kind of stuff like always in- interested me. So I read some Doctor Strange as a kid, and when I first saw the images on the trailer of. Uh, of Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange in full get-up and full gear. I was like, oh, my God, they did it. They, did it. they actually brought him to life. I mean, yeah, it's, it's that really epic the way he looks. really was the perfect guy to play yeah. that. Yeah, It'll be interesting to, like, to make see him how look he exactly like he did in the comics. Yep. That's winning. Completely winning. Anyway, uh, we have... Uh, It'll be interesting. We have a couple of stories to get to. Yeah, definitely will be. Uh, there's a couple of things we want to get to here on the Wall of Weird. Uh, DCS, uh, lead us off. What's the first thing we're going to get to here? You know what, let's do this one because this one's actually pretty interesting. So over on RT, and I'll put it in the chat for everybody, there was a UFO spotted over Vienna, and it frightened onlookers so much that they called the police. Uh-oh. This article is interesting. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> this article was interesting because when you look at the pictures, I swear to God you'd say you're tripping for nothing, it's a plane. But then when you look at the video this guy took on his phone, I'm like, I don't know. Like, then it looks a little different. So I put it in chat for everybody so they can take a peek of it. So they can see. And, you know, it's, it's the awesome thing about this video and some of the pictures is it looks the way, you know, you would think it would look if there was a UFO in the sky. you got people standing on the street. They're out of their cars. Everybody's got their cell phones up, pointed at the sky. So I'm looking at these pictures. I'm like, is everybody just stupid today? They just took a picture of an airplane? Like, what's going on? <laughs> Hold on, I mean, I'm going to run right, the video now. But the, the clip is interesting. <laughs> I'm it's like, very uh, interesting, maybe yeah. it's not a plane. Right. So I don't know. It's an angel. Somebody, it must be an angel. It's... Is somebody having fun with their drone? Like, what's going on? But people called the police on this. So officials did not comment on the mysterious object. Uh, according to one local, of course, alien skeptics are like, yes, it's, you know, it's, uh, alien skeptics are confident in fact it is just a small remote control helicopter you know, so, by all intents and purposes nowadays, nowadays a lot of things a lot of things can be mistaken for drone yeah well no yeah. drones well, can what be mistaken do you guys think UFOs. with that video uh, well I'll say this much uh, I, look I'm not I'm gonna tell you this much I, nowadays a lot of drones are mistaken for UFOs not the other way around the other that's guy that's what I'm sorry the yeah other. But uh, oh. the, the thing, the thing is, when I'm when I'm looking at this, yeah, it's an it's a UFO just on the simple fact that we can't identify what it is. But I am pretty sure, I'm pretty confident that this is a drone. Uh, based mm. on the propeller flipping around and spinning around on the sides, yeah, I'd I'd venture to guess that it's a drone. If you look yeah. at it, you can actually see the propeller, the light bouncing off the propellers that are spinning. Yep, yep on yep. all four corners. So I'm I'm going with drone on this. Yeah. What kind of drone? I really can't say. So in that sense, it's still an identified drone. So UFD. There you go. That's what this is. A UFD, an unidentified drone. UFD. It's a UFD. All those poor people that called the police. <laughs> like, no, guys, it's just a drone. You know the crazy <laughs> well, that thing drone is. Drone operator had a fun night. Oh, uh, I bet. You know the crazy thing is with all the drone technology going the way it is. I mean, it's going to be impossible to, to really. Uh, say what's real and what's not real, even more. I mean, we thought that it was bad with CGI work. My goodness, now you actually have drones flying around that look like UFOs. Right, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I, you know, the people that we interviewed at MUFON were saying that it's making their work a thousand times more difficult because yeah. I mean, now how do you 
now you really have to have, I mean, we've got to have more than video. There has to be some other kind of evidence. Otherwise, you know, who knows? Yep. It's ridiculous. You're right. All right, I'm so a, that's that one. Yeah, I call it Bat Squatch. I don't think it's a UFO, but I do think it's a UFD. So there we go. There we go. There we go. It's a Bat Squatchy UFD. How about that? Uh, that, that works for me. That works? I'll vote for that. I'll that buy that for a dollar. Oh, anyway, my goodness. You know, I remember that <laughs> oh, reference. Oh, that's a flashback. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Speaking of drones, guys, all right, we'll go on to the next one. Over at the expressco.uk, okay. apparently a drone recorded a UFO. A drone recorded yeah. a UFO. Wasn't that funny? And ironic. Uh, you know, talk, oh, so much irony. So much irony. <laughs> I'm right, leaving things to everybody like. now. Let's go. Um, so it, so the paranormal investigators are looking at video footage captured by a drone which recorded three UFOs appearing to emerge from trees. The video was sent to MUFON. Um, it showed two white spheres, uh, two, yeah, white spheres and a larger disc flying beneath the drone. The video was filmed in Hase Lake in Parkland County, Alberta, Canada by an unnamed drone operator uh, this month. So this is awesome. really recent. Yeah, half October. Yeah. In a report yeah. to MUFON, um, obviously we everybody knows what MUFON is. The man said it was the weirdest thing he had ever recorded while using the mini helicopters. He wrote, these objects were recorded with my Phantom 3P drone while recording fall colors. So this guy's out doing some fall color stuff, and all of a sudden he gets some UFOs. So there's hmm. some pictures, uh, and I believe, I don't know if there's a video. I, think there's I don't a video see a too. video listed. Okay, I think... There are definitely some interesting pictures. Yeah, this is a drone recording another drone. <laughs> So you think it is a drone getting another drone? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a very quick clip. Oh, you, you the can't, irony. Yeah, you can't really, like, you know, get a good view of what it is. It's fun. It could easily be a bird just gliding right by this thing. I mean, you can't really get a good description of what it is, but it would be funny if it's a drone. That would be funny if it's a drone recording. <laughs> hey, Stranger Things. I know, the pictures happened. look weird. I don't, I don't know what's going on in those pictures. It's like some weird, like square-shaped object. I don't. I have no idea. Yeah, it does look a little bit uh, weird. Um, hmm. The thing is, uh, with video, of course, you can't tell the size or dimensions of this thing really that well, so... Right. Right, of course, never. Mm-hmm. Never. What do you think, other guy? I'm thinking that I don't know because I can't see a video. I need video. Not just two frames out of God knows what was shot. Well, I mean, all you need is the two frames. I mean, that's all that they got, really. Well, they obviously got more, so I want to see more. Well, he wants to see more? Maybe, okay. maybe not. Well, know. well, uh, all right. So I'll call up Mufon, and I will let them know that the other guy wants to see the video. You okay. tell him oh, the okay. other guy demands to see more footage. Well, it's well, not like we know people enough like people in Mufon, so, you know. Demands we know some people. We know some people and some people. Yeah. But it does say at the end of the article that MUFON is actually investigating this one. So maybe we can go check the MUFON case file and see how they ruled it. Because those guys are pretty good over at MUFON. They know what yeah. they're doing. Yeah, yeah, You know, it'll be funny. I don't know why people haven't uh, tried this uh, to use drones to actually, actually pick up, uh, you know, objects, you know, like UFOs or even Bigfoot. Like, you know, what, and we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago with our guests, uh, use drones to search for Bigfoot. Why not? Right. Right, right. You know, have them hover yeah. over the woods so you I can capture stuff. You know, like, hey, do it. Use the technology Absolutely. at your disposal. 
I think we have to. I mean, we're just, you know, I mean, the technology is there, so we're just going to have to get smarter about how we try to catch these things. Right. I mean, it's the only way. It's the only way we're going to be able to tell the difference because, I mean, we all love sky watching, but I'm not sure that we can just, you know, go outside and look up at a telescope anymore because freaking drones. Yeah, no, 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 no yeah, satellites, drones, <laughs> yeah. planes, uh, Chinese lanterns, right. you know, gas from Venus. I mean, there's gas from Florida. There's all kinds of gas. Swamp going gas, on. swamp gas, yeah. Swamp gas, swamp you know, gas. yeah, people on bath swamp salts. I mean, it's crazy, like man. There's too much stuff going on. People on bath salts. Too much craziness <laughs> going on. Yeah, Holographic projections, true. MK Ultra. They're just messing with our minds, folks. It's just, it's craziness. You. We're Freaking seeing things. Harp, y'all. Harp is killing us, killing every one of us. Uh, guys, we're going to go out on a commercial break here in a couple minutes with uh, with that. Peter Lavenda is going to uh, join us, and uh, we're going to talk about the occult. We're going to talk about the Nazi cover-up uh, when it comes to ufology, because I think there there is a major cover-up dealing with the Nazis and UFOs. And uh, we, you know, I really want to get to what Peter knows about that and uh, and kind of segue into that early on. So I can't, I can't wait to have Peter on the show. This is going to be an awesome episode. Oh, absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. I agree, absolutely. So do we have anything else for the wall of weird there before we go on break? One more thing. Nothing I can see off the top of my head. You, know, you can't see much of the top of your head. You don't have eyes up there. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I did get that at surgery done. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Night, 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 this week. Next week, maybe. No, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Crystal? Okay. That's good. Um, there were some cool things that you had pointed me to, Jacqueline, over on Open Mind, if you want to grab one of those. Ah, go for it. That one, if we got say, yeah, you want to do that? Let's see. It says, I'm going to grab your one because this part is a cool video that everybody should watch, especially people who hang out with us every Tuesday night. Open Mind TV has an interesting article up, The Truth About UFOs and Military Secrecy. And this is actually posted by our good friend Alejandro Rojas. Yes. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's a video for everybody to watch. I don't know how long it is. I didn't have time. It's 20 minutes. It's a 20-minute video thereabouts. And the military has claimed they have no interest in UFOs and say they do not investigate UFO cases. A bunch of liars. They are a bunch of big fat lion liars. It's true. However, through the Freedom of Information Act, investigators have uncovered several documents that would indicate UFOs have been of interest and that the most important files were most likely never made public, which we all know. Yeah. Um, regardless of whether one believes that the UFO phenomenon is real or not, what is clear from the Air Force's own records is that they have taken at least a handful of UFO reports seriously since 1969, despite, despite claims to the contrary, and they do not seem to feel obligated to share this information with the public. Open minds obviously feel differently, and they will continue to bring findings as they find it. They're digging for the information. So that's go. pretty cool. I mean, that's – see, now anybody tries to say that UFOs are real, boom, Freedom of Information Act. Got yep, you. Yeah, love for you. I'm and, calling uh, bull when they say uh, only a handful. Yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah, I can see yeah. that also, yeah. There's no way it was only Yeah, that. yeah. I mean, but, you know, there's only so much you're going to be able to get from the Freedom of Information Act. So the fact Correct. that they even about, you know, they could even get this much, that's, you know, decent enough. Guys, uh, we got to hit break, and when we return, uh, we have Peter Lavender on the line with us. And uh, once again, there's going to be a very, very interesting, maybe a little creepy uh, of a show. So if you have young ones, uh, put them in their rooms, put them to bed, and uh, turn off the lights. It's going to be a fun show tonight here on Skywatchers Radio. Guys, we'll be right back. Don't go nowhere.
Professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to Skywatchers Radio right here live again on psn-radio.com. And now without any further delay, and I'm sorry we had a little bit of a musical delay there. Uh, we had a little technical uh, snafu that happened here during the break, uh, which we had to fix. But we're back on the air, and without any further delay, we're going to have our guest of the evening on with us now for the rest of the hour. And uh, this is a gentleman who I've been really, like I said, looking forward to having on this show for quite a bit uh, now. And he's been on other shows here on the network, uh, and uh, he's a fascinating person to listen to, especially when it comes to this subject, which I am so interested in. Peter Lavenda, thank you so much for being here with us on Skywatchers Radio. It means a lot to me personally because, again, this is, uh, to me, one of the, the most fascinating subjects uh, in ufology, the Nazi occult connection to ufology. And that's something that I love talking about because it's just so interesting to me. But uh, you after doing some of the research uh, that you've done, I'm pretty sure that this is just uh, mind-blowing and fascinating, some of the stuff you've uncovered. So, again, thank you so much for being here with us, sir. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Now, tell the audience a little bit about your background, because, you know, I mentioned earlier that you're, you you grew up in the Bronx, uh, New Hampshire, you know, the whole nine yards, and then Malaysia for some reason. I don't know how that happened. Uh, but what took you out to Malaysia? What got you started in this field? Well, that's a lot of different questions there. Uh, I got started in the <laughs> field, really, uh, during Watergate, for the most part. 
when I started really paying attention, I, I read maybe three newspapers a day during the Watergate period. And um, I was astonished at the names that kept cropping up because they all sounded vaguely familiar. And, you know, there was connections back to the Bay of Pigs. There was connections to various CIA stuff, to the, the Kennedy assassinations. And, and all of this, you know, was, was like I was seeing connections to all of this. And so I really got involved in that particular, in this whole particular idea of a, of a covert history or a hidden history in the United States at that time. And it wasn't necessarily always a question of conspiracy, but it was a question of connections between people, places, and events that you just wouldn't believe if somebody had written it in a novel, but really did, did you know, show up in reality. And I was just fascinated by the fact that this was, you know, this was really going on. You know, people like E. Howard Hunt, you know, working uh, as a Watergate plumber, but before that he was an action officer for the Bay of Pigs invasion, you know, and... And then on his deathbed recently, of course, he said that he, you know, knew about the assassination plot against Jack Kennedy. So all of this stuff, you know, would, would just swirl around. And so I was very deeply involved in it. I was one of those maniacs with the scissors keeping clippings out of newspapers, you know. Uh, no internet. <laughs> yeah, you had your, you had your days, own no wall of weird, I'm sure, right? You had like your own wall oh, of weird with pretty much, colors. yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> oh yeah, I was one of those people you kind of stayed away from you know, <laughs> in coffee shops. So, um, yeah, I did a lot of research on that, and I read every book I could find, everything that uh, that got into my hands, and I talked to people. And then I began to realize that there was a Nazi component, you know, to all of this as well. And that really got my attention. Um, when uh, r- reports started coming out about high-level connections between U.S. government uh, types and political leaders and members of the Nazi underground and, you know, war criminals who have been kind of uh, sanitized for American, uh, you know, for the American diet, but they really weren't, you know, uh, nice guys. These were evil people. Um, Some of them went on to attain high ranks in American culture and life. So all of these things really, you know, struck me, bothered me. I mean, I had uncles who fought in in World War II in both theaters in Europe and the Pacific and you know, there was this idea that the Nazis were this embodiment of absolute evil, you know, and to see that there were Nazis living in the United States and that they were involved with, you know, politicians or they were involved in the military or in our scientific endeavors like Werner von Braun or, or Walter Dornberg or people like that. I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, you know. I mean, hold on, hold on yeah, a second. I mean, what is this, this is a little, this is a little further than just being involved. I mean, Werner von Braun, by all accounts, is the reason why we went to the moon. I mean, this person is responsible for a big chunk of our space program, if not the entirety of the space program. So, literally, these people weren't just recruited. I mean, they were they were integrated into our society, which says a lot, considering we're dealing with the ultimate evil, which is the Nazis. Well, yeah, they were totally integrated within it. In fact, they replaced other people. The thing that bothered me Correct. Yeah. as yeah. I began to, 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 to study this, and it, it's taken 20, 30 years of going over a lot of files and waiting for files to get declassified and, and then waiting for historians to come up with more information, uh, gradually I began to piece together you know, elements of this, which is actually parts of it will be coming out over the next year or so in a series of books that I'm doing about just this this specific aspect. And I was astonished to realize that the people who had jump-started our, our rocket programs during World War II, before the end of the war, during the war, uh, American citizens, you know, people who were very patriotic and they were developing rocket systems and they were, you know, they had, they had the same dream of going to the moon and all of that, were gradually kind of phased out of, of industry. 
They were phased out of academia. They were charged with being communists or being weird or whatever <laughs> was around at the time. And basically were being replaced by Nazis that we were bringing in, you know, from Europe at the end of the war. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm going across this, there's this a huge, you know, uh, this is a violation of, of something that was taking place at that time when you had even Robert Oppenheimer. Now, Oppenheimer is considered to be the father of the atomic bomb. Um, he was the guy running the Manhattan Project, you know, running the scientists for the Manhattan Project. And it turns out, you know, they decided they wanted to get rid of him. So they found out that his brother had attended a communist meeting in, in California or something. And they used that to take away Robert Oppenheimer's security clearance. Here's the guy who built the bombs that we dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And now we say, well, he's not American enough for us. We took away his security clearance and replaced him essentially with Nazi scientists. And when I saw that going, I'm thinking, wow. well, wait a minute. What is going on here? You know, something really, really fishy was taking place. And this has happened, you know, just all up and down the line, all various types of factories, uh, corporations. You had Dornberger eventually going over to Bell Aerospace. And Dornberger, you know, was running Pinamunda, which was the Nazi rocket factory. Uh, right. And then down at Nordhausen when they started building these underground tunnels in, uh, under the mountains at the end of the war. Here was a guy who was, you know, using slave labor, having people killed, you know, a really nasty, evil guy, an unrepentant Nazi. And we brought him over. He was at Wright Field in July of 1947 as the Roswell debris is being shipped there. You know, what was he doing at Wright Field in 47, specifically right. the month and year that they're shipping Roswell debris? And, of course, there was a lot of speculation that uh, the Roswell craft was a Nazi experimental craft. So it starts to make sense that you'd have all these Germans in these very important positions in our rocket industry including some really savage individuals. Hubertus Strickhold down in San Antonio at Randolph Air Force Base was a guy who was, you know, a, a, the medical officer for, you know, all these experiments that were taking place on live subjects at Dachau and other, other camps. Uh, you know, he was just, Strickhold was this guy who operated on living human beings, you know, to see what the effects would be of low pressure and high altitude and, you know, lack of oxygen and falling into, you know, ice cold water if your plane ditched over the Atlantic you know, all these things, he would use living human beings from the camps, prisoners, as test subjects. And now this guy we sent down with a couple hundred of his closest friends to set up the aviation medicine department at Randolph Air Force Base. You know, and that's the aviation medicine for the entire space program. So I'm looking at all this and I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm astonished. And I'm asking myself, you know, there's got to be more to this than simply politics as usual, you know. This is like a major sea change for the U.S. It's like we sold our soul to the devil, basically, to bring these guys over that we knew were capable of atrocities or were at least fellow travelers in those atrocities. Right. And we brought them over and said, here you go. Let's you know, help, help us with our space program. And the space program, people should remember, until the 1960s, the space program was a military rocket program. It was a missile program. It really wasn't a space program yet. That's correct, yeah. It gradually became a space program. Werner von Braun wanted to go to the moon ever since the 1930s. You know, he was in contact with our scientists back in the days before the war. So he really did have this desire to go to the moon. But until then, for the first 10 years or so that he was in the States, uh, he and his, his the fellow Nazi scientists were all there developing missiles. No, I, I, I remember hearing or reading somewhere that shortly after we did go to the moon, um, 
Werner von Braun kind of went off the radar and started dealing with a lot of the black budget stuff. Is that accurate? Well, yeah, he dealt with black budget stuff, and he also started making some weird pronouncements about aliens, you know. Mm. So von Braun started to actually kind of talk in a, in a in a way about UFOs as if he was really acknowledging not only that they existed, but that they were here, they had been here for a while. You know, weird things that von Braun was saying. So we didn't hear much from him the last right. few yeah, years. Yeah, he went off the radar completely for a few years, yeah. Yeah, he went off the radar for, for that. I, mean, I think he was involved in black budget stuff. He obviously had his finger on everything at NASA for a very long time. Uh, Dornberger was kind of shunted off to the side a little bit, and Dornberger was his boss uh, in, in Nazi Germany. But Dornberger then gets involved with Bell you know, Aircraft and, and eventually with Bell Aerospace. He's on, he's, he has a position on the board. You know, He's a seat on the board of directors of Bell. And uh, that was just a little astonishing to me. I mean, total coincidence, I'm sure, but uh, it was uh, it Bell is. that shows up. Yeah, it shows up a lot in the assassination stuff around JFK. And, of course, so do the Nazis to a certain extent. I mean, it's that's one of the things that Mary Farrell used to talk about all the time was the influence of, you know, the connections between Nazi figures and Nazi organizations and institutions with with characters involved in the Kennedy assassination. So she used to focus on that a great deal, the late Mary Farrell down in Texas. But... Um, you know, I started to find out more, you know, verification of this. It's like, what is, what was this? You know, was it really enough to be anti-communist? I mean, if you were anti-communist, then you were a Nazi. Those are the only two ways you could go, communist or Nazi, you know, in the post-war period. And so if you were anti-communist, you had to be a Nazi, right? You just couldn't be a patriotic American who was against right. the communists <laughs> and the Nazis. You had to be right. on one side or the other. And I think that kind of polarization in this country kind of started around that time. Um, there are a lot of people who hated the Nazis. Einstein, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, they had meetings in New York, and they did, you know, conferences to try to tell, you know, the, the military not to bring in any Nazis under Operation Paperclip. You know, they were actually demonstrating against it, and they were ignored, and they were therefore considered communists because of it, you know. I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt's husband, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was castigated as a communist and a dictator and everything else by extremists on the right side and so you had this idea that wow you could only be one or the other you know you're either for us or against us and the nazis were so anti-communist and we were so frightened of the soviet union that uh, we basically opened up our doors and said come on in help us out you know it's crazy we we flash forward now to 2016 and we're still having conflicts with the with the russia like it's the soviet union still yeah. there it's amazing sure. it's amazing how things yeah it is amazing no, they really don't. Yeah, the more that you think things change, the more they just uh, stay stagnant, stay the same. You know, it, it, it's always bugged me, uh, Peter, the simple fact that uh, these people were brought over so easily and so quickly integrated with our society and with everything that uh, that happened uh, during that era. And in that same time period, uh, Hollywood was being bombarded with allegations of communism, also with their writers, and uh, there was, you know, a lot of folks that got in trouble because they attended a party when they were like 12 or 13 or 14 that had a person who might have been a Nazi. And there was a lot of smoke and mirror stuff, I think, there to kind of cover up for what was going on behind the scenes with the Vernon and Bronze and all these other folks. I think, you know, even back then, Hollywood was kind of being used as a pawn. Oh, it definitely was. I mean, the idea, Hollywood had done a great service during World War II in churning out these propaganda films, Right. Yeah. So it, it, they were there to stir up American patriotism. Remember, America really didn't want to go into the war. 
I mean, right. they, we yeah. were sort of isolationist in the late 1930s and 1940. We didn't want any part of whatever was going on in Europe or in Asia. That was, you know, let them deal with their own problems. And uh, it took a, a really a major, it took the, you know, the Pearl Harbor attack and lots of other stuff to get us really involved in the war. But we still had a lot of Americans who were not that gung-ho about it. And these films, I mean, starting with films like Casablanca, right, were trying to get us, you know, in the mood to fight the Nazis and eventually to fight the Japanese. I mean, we made a lot of films like that. And the government realized the power that Hollywood had. And we should also remember that the people who took over and created Madison Avenue and created the, you know, the idea of sales and marketing, uh, the whole science of marketing, were people who had run the psychological warfare operations for Eisenhower uh, in Europe during the war. These were psychological warfare experts, and I'm thinking of C.D. Jackson as probably the most famous. He was head of Psywar under Eisenhower. Uh, he came back to the States and then became the, the, the chairman of Time Life, right? And he's the guy that eventually bought the Zapruder film and kept it off of the shelves so that nobody could see it until the famous Jim Garrison trial, the Clay Shaw trial in New Orleans. So no one knew the Zapruder film existed. C.D. Jackson's the guy who deep-sixed it. There was this this whole thing that, you know, we could use the same psychological warfare we did against the Nazis. We could actually use it against the American people. We just fine-tune it a little bit, and we can get the Americans to do pretty much anything we want them to do using the same, you know, technologies that we developed during the war. So you have this. It's a continuum of, of people and organizations, and anybody who really wants to study this history will find all the data there. This, there's no... It's not a conspiracy theory. This is just a fact of life. And, you know, authors like Christopher Simpson, for instance, in Blowback uh, and a few other books like that really went into those details back in the 80s and 90s. He was uncovering the influence that these psychological warfare officers from World War II had upon the American population and training us to think in certain ways uh, about Russia, about China, you know, getting us to get patriotic and to, to report on our neighbors if we suspected them of being communists and all this other right. stuff you know so all of this was 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 of a piece you know and at that same time our space program is going on and the ufo flaps are starting in 1947 the 1952 the famous flaps over washington dc and you know it went on and on from there so these two things dovetail pretty neatly so you've got nazis on the one hand and you've got the psychological warfare guys and then you have the ufo thing which is like blowing everybody's mind because no one knows where that's coming from right and because we're so paranoid, we think maybe it's the Russians, you know, maybe it's a secret Nazi uh, machine. You know, maybe this is something that our enemies are doing. We can't defend our borders. Right. These things are flying in over us and they're doing whatever, whenever they want to doing whatever they want. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. So that freaked out some people in the military who were not cleared high enough, maybe hmm. to know what was really going on. Now, do you think that uh, I mean, do you think there is. Uh, any truth to one of my beliefs that a lot of the UFO related stuff is our own, our own objects. This is stuff that we're working on and it's not so much aliens that are coming down all the time. Uh, do you think that was even going on back then? Do you think most of the stuff that they were seeing back then were actually test objects uh, that we were flying around? Well, it, it depends which ones, but for certain, for certain, you know, we were developing aircraft and we're still developing secret aircraft that have right. been mistaken often for UFOs. There's no doubt about that. I think, I think the U-2 spy plane was once, you know, uh, misidentified as a UFO mm -hmm. and, you know, stuff like that. No one knew these things existed. No one knew Area 51 existed. Right, right. So, you know, I attended a meeting at one of the areas uh, in Nevada some years ago, 
Um, and you know, there was a presentation by a guy from Area 51, you know, and he starts off the presentation by playing the X-Files theme, and everybody laughs, right? <laughs> so he goes in, though, the story, the real story, the backstory behind what was going on there is, is really intense. I mean, they were doing a lot of intense stuff. They were flying pilots in from different parts of the world, uh, different parts of the United States, rather. They had no idea. Their families didn't know what they were doing. They were flying all these test planes. You know, they would go home and say they were, you know, working in some factory somewhere, when in actuality they were... They were creating these really, you know, bizarre and very advanced spy planes. So a lot of, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of secrecy around our own programs. And when that secrecy gets confabulated with the UFO secrecy, then you have a mess. You can't really entangle it, right? So you don't know who's, who's telling the truth about anything, you know, because you know they're, they're keeping the spy plane stuff secret from you. That's a fact. So, and that means that not just, the military is doing that, but industry is also doing that, right? Lockheed Martin, as a good example, you know, it's the famous skunk works. So you have guys who are involved in developing these secret machines, and they're keeping the secret machines secret from all the rest of us. And then there's the UFO phenomenon. They're not identical, you know, but they do kind of run in parallel. And well, some, they're close. Some of the, well, some of the UFOs are, are our machines and, you know, and vice versa, but right. there's also the actual UFOs which have, you know, flight characteristics that our, our planes still don't have. One of the reasons why I brought that question up, Peter, is because we ran a, a story earlier, uh, or read a story earlier, about how the government doesn't really think there's, there's anything to it and this and that. And, but, yeah, you see videos of, like, the Avrocar, and you see all these videos on the Internet now that are kind of, like, you know, showing you what the government had back in the 60s and 50s and what they were like, kind of, like, tinkering with, which I think is just a magic trick. They're just showing you something they want you to see while the real black budget stuff is re- it's happening, you know, and you, we're never going to see that stuff, those videos. Uh, but there's footage that's leaked out, you know, within the government that shows objects that they've had in their possession that are UFO saucer-like objects. So, I mean, how much are they really not interested in the stuff when they're creating the stuff and working with uh, other governments and stuff uh, to get some other technologies uh, going here. Uh, it's it's uh, an amazing web we weave when these uh, governments deceive, huh? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, you can't be an engineer in, in aviation, an aviation engineer, and not be fascinated by the possibilities that UFOs present, right. you know, just from an engineering point of view. You've got to sit there and ask yourself someday, how can I do this? How can I make that work? You know, how can I develop a craft that's going to dis- exhibit those flight characteristics. I mean, those rapid 90-degree turns in midair at top speed would kill a human being. The G-forces yeah. alone would destroy you. So is there anybody up in, in those things? Are there humans you know, or androids or something piloting this craft? Or maybe it's being remotely controlled. Engineers look at this, and they have to start thinking, and they have to start asking questions. And some of those thoughts go into the creation of some of the things we have. When I was a kid, I was, as you pointed out in your introduction, I was born in 1950. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> and when I was a kid in the 50s, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. which is you know quite some time ago, um, I had plastic models of like the Evercar, right? I mean, these were things that people were coming out with, like model flying saucers that you made yourself, these plastic things that had USA decals on them because they were being developed by us. You know, this was something that was kind of a – people talked about it in those days. It was open. And then suddenly in the 60s, the lid came down on that kind of stuff, right? And then you weren't – you you know, you didn't have kids making model UFOs anymore, you know. 
So the Avro car and all the stuff that was coming out of Canada and these attempts to duplicate what the Horton brothers, the Nazi uh, uh, engineers, were trying to do, creating their flying wings, and which is possibly what Kenneth Arnold saw, because his drawing of what he saw matches pretty closely the Horton vehicles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, uh, and it's not, it not exactly yeah. a, a flying saucer what Kenneth Arnold saw. It's a no. boomerang-shaped, correct? Just for the audience. A boomerang shape, exactly, right. which is the Horton design. Correct. Yeah. Right. So it, it looked pretty close to the Nazi design. Mm-hmm. And there had to be, you know, we knew, we brought these scientists over for something. We knew they were experts in in everything concerning rockets. It wasn't just the design of the of the the rocket itself. It was the engines. It was the propulsion systems. It was aviation medicine. It was everything involved with spaceflight. We and and you know high altitude uh, aircraft flight. We brought these guys over for those reasons. They knew this stuff intimately. In fact, there's a story that's come out relatively recently. Talking about Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, there was a, a submarine that was captured at the end of the war, the U-234, uh, which uh, we brought into Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire, I believe. We got it off the coast of Nova Scotia. We brought it up, and there was all this uranium on board. Uh, there were a lot of plans. There was an entire Messerschmitt aircraft broken down in crates on board the plane, and there were V-2 rockets and all this kind of other stuff on this on the U-234, and it was going on its way to Japan. They were at, we were going the Nazis were going to help Japan, you know, if, uh, develop an atomic bomb and you know a delivery system with the V-2. So the U- the, the U-234 was captured, and an American in a fedora and a long coat and glasses shows up. On the docks, he wants to go and and, and you know inspect what the Nazi uh, submarine had in its hold, and of course there was all the uranium in there, and there was plans for the atomic bombs that the Nazis were working on. Well, this is like in May of 1945, and what most people don't realize, we still didn't have the bomb yet. In May of 45, we were kind of close, but we didn't have an operating bomb. Oppenheimer goes and visits the U-234, looks at the plans, looks at everything else, goes back to his work table, and, you know, by July, we're testing Trinity. You know, we're testing the bombs. And, you know, uh, it wasn't Roosevelt anymore. It was Truman at this time could then go yeah, and talk hang on, hang on, hang to on. Stalin. I can't say he had yeah. that much of a leap of knowledge just yeah. that trip. Is that what it, you're saying? It appears, it appears to be so because he saw their plans. He saw their documents. He saw the the uh, the paperwork that they had created, the blueprints that they were sending to the Japanese, and maybe it wasn't a complete bomb that he saw, but it was it filled in enough of the missing pieces that he needed to go back and to finish the job in building the bomb. It's a fact we didn't have the bomb in May of 1945, but after the U-234 was captured, suddenly we have the bomb. Now again, could be a coincidence, but. It appears as though Oppenheimer did visit that U-234, did go back, did create a bomb, and by July we had a bomb, and Truman could tell Stalin and everybody else, yes, we have the bomb, we're ready to drop it. You know, So that's what he needed. He needed that information to go on, you know, have bragging rights to the allies in Europe to say the war is about ready to be over, we've got a weapon of devastating power. Um, it's possible the Nazis supplied the missing pieces. And what's really scary is that if that submarine had not been captured it would have wound up in japan and who knows what they would have done with it in the last months of the war yeah and i don't think there's anything uh coincidental here i don't think there's coincidences involved this is all planned and very very well strategized and put together well when i wrote sinister forces i wrote this from the point of view as opposed to getting deep into a conspiracy theory which you can get lost in the weeds and find out you're not really proving anything right what i did is i took a different approach i said okay 
let's look at it from a different point of view. Maybe there's a like a quantum mechanical theory of history, you know, mm. like it, it doesn't have to be cause and effect the way we understand it in a direct line. But maybe it's not a coincidence, quote unquote. You know, there's no like the Kennedy assassination is a good is a good example. You know, as they say in, in, in quantum uh, theory, you know, a, a light wave. Is it, a, is it a particle or is it a wave? Right. It depends on the observer. It depends if you're measuring mm-hmm. particles or you're measuring waves. That's how you break down light. What is a photon? You know, is it a particle or is it a wave? I say that in, in the case of the Kennedy assassination and virtually any conspiracy, you ask yourself, is it a particle or a wave? So sometimes things right. are related, but they're related on a meta level, you know, that we don't really consciously understand, but they are related. You know, the timing of these events is so suggestive that you have to say that is what happened. Maybe we can't prove it. Maybe the documents were shredded. Maybe the eyewitnesses are all dead. But when you look at the timelines and you look at the the chronology of what happened, you can build a very strong and very convincing narrative that this was the case, that the Nazis were that close to the bomb and we were that far away that when we got a hold of their documents, the problem was solved. Peter, would you say and and agree with me on uh, on one point here that JFK was assassinated because of this conspiracy in particular more than anything else uh, to me it's always been uh, this you know relation to Nazi Germany to the UFO phenomenon and to uh, the bomb itself uh, to me this is why he was taken out I don't think Oswald did it alone I think there was a major influence from uh, people way above the pay grade if you know what I mean to get him uh, taken out because remember he, he gave that great speech talking about how uh, you know we shouldn't keep secrets basically and these are some right. big big secrets. Well, yeah. Plus, he wanted to cooperate with the Soviet Union on the space program. Right. That to me was the nail in his coffin. Mm-hmm. No generals and nobody at NASA and nobody in the in the military industrial complex, to use Eisenhower's term, nobody there was going to willingly cooperate with the Soviet Union. And, and build a space a, a space platform, you know, a space station, and, and go to the moon. He was talking about cooperating with them after the whole disastrous Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis and all of that. He was saying, "Let's, you know, we all want, we all breathe the same air." His famous speech, right? We all Very want true. the same things for our children, yeah. etc. Let's cooperate with the Soviet Union. I think that would have been reason enough for a lot of people to have wanted Kennedy dead. The last mm-hmm. thing they were going to do is cooperate with the Soviet Union. Remember, that was in 63. I mean, they were already putting people behind bars for being suspected communists in the 1950s all the way up to that point. They were rabid, you know, where that was concerned. Right. They they looked at communists in those days the way they're looking at terrorists today. You know, it was the same kind of paranoia. There's one under every, under every bed in every closet. So for Kennedy to come out and, and talk like that about, yeah, let's cooperate with the Soviet Union. Yeah, right, okay. You know, he, had, he didn't have much longer to live after that, after making those pronouncements. Yeah, it, it's a, an incredible uh, tale of events that happened right after the, like, those comments came out uh, from JFK. Oh, yeah. and, I mean, it's incredible the way it snowballed that and ended up the way it did. I mean, in history, would never know what really happened there, I don't think. Like, that's what, you know, the Kennedy assassination is one of those things which is going to go down in history as the unsolved murder, uh, which we're never going to get a clear-cut answer. But honestly, I, I really do not believe that Oswald had any part. I think Oswald just, he was a patsy, 
he was there, and he was, because, uh, I mean, there was, wasn't there uh, reports that he was downstairs and not actually at the spot where they said that he was at the book depository, that he was downstairs, like, getting a soda or something when the shots went off? Exactly. He was in so, the lunchroom getting a soda. Right. He was seen there. Eyewitnesses said he was there. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I, this I, is unless, the, he, unless he yeah. can time travel or he's the Flash, there's no way he could get those shots off and be a, Teleportation. downstairs. Yeah. Well, Oswald is a very strange character because there's so much weird about Oswald anyway. So it was easy to pin everything on him that you wanted to. You could pin anything on him. He's the perfect Patsy. The perfect Patsy. Yeah. But the thing is, what I I uncovered when I was working on Sinister Forces back about 10 years ago, I was looking at Oswald with a fine tooth comb because there was something about the whole thing that was bothering me. And I'm going through, you know, Mary Farrell was had i think just passed away previously to that but she had accumulated all this information on the assassination and she kind of did a correspondence to virtually every page and every character and every every event and i'm going through this this computerized file of stuff and i'm looking at um you know there was testimony in front of the warren commission by a woman who lived uh with you know oswald with marina and and oswald in texas um hello yeah, yeah, we're uh, yeah, we're here. We're listening. Oh, okay. I, I just got a message saying you lost the call. Sorry about that. Now that um, was that was Crystal. She'll be jumping back on soon. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought that was for me. Anyway, so the 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 story was that she's talking. This woman is talking to the Warren Commission. Uh, Dulles, you know, Alan Dulles, front head, former head of the CIA, is part of this. He's sitting in. He's part of the people listening to her talk, and she's talking about going up to visit her in-laws up in Pennsylvania, uh, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, in, uh, I think it was August or September of that year, of 63. And at that, t- at that time, she has Marina Oswald, you know, she knows Lee and Marina, they're, you know, they're both uh, living in and out of her house. She's, you know, Marina's living there with her kids, and, you know, she wants to learn Russian from Marina, and all this other stuff is going on. She's a very famous figure in the assassination. Her name is Ruth Payne, and she's talking blithely about going up to Philadelphia to to visit her in-laws, at which point Alan Dulles himself abruptly changes the conversation. I mean, he changes the subject immediately in midstream and has her talking about something else entirely. He derails that conversation. I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, what what the hell is all that about, you know? And I start digging deeper and deeper. And it turns out her in-laws, her in-law, her, her father-in-law is a guy called Arthur Young. And Arthur Young was the inventor of the Bell helicopter. And he left the Bell helicopter business at the end of World War II to devote himself entirely to a study of the paranormal. Uh, yoga, ESP, astrology, all that stuff, right? So he's like firmly entrenched in this. But when I saw the name Arthur Young, I was taken aback. I was shocked because Arthur Young was one of the nine, was one of the central figures in a seance that took place in 1953 uh, with some of the moneyed heads of American industry. You had an Astor, a Forbes, uh, a DuPont, all of these people. There's just oh, there's only nine of them. And there's, you know, there's already three names that everyone knows. And they're sitting in a seance, okay, in Maine. This is very well documented. This is documented in so many places. And they're sitting in this seance, and they're in contact with some supernatural entities at which – as it turns out, are aboard a flying saucer hovering, you know, in low Earth orbit somewhere. And they're communicating with these heads of industry and America's moneyed families 
and saying, you know, we have a job for you to do. You know, we're there's nine of us up here. There's nine of you down there. You're going to go and you're going to do great things in the world. I'm paraphrasing a great deal, but it was a long, very flowery statement that they were making to these people. And Arthur Young and his wife, Ruth Forbes, was part of this, this seance. This, they're a married couple. And Ruth Forbes' son, Michael, worked at Bell Aerospace in Texas in Dallas oh my. at the time of the assassination, right? Wow. His wife, Ruth, has Marina in her house. I mean, wow. Wow. Oswald never had wow. a chance. It was, it was Ruth who got Oswald the job at the Texas School Book Depository. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he had no chance. The guy you, you surrounded him. You couldn't get a better setup. You couldn't write this stuff in Hollywood, put it that way. And then Dulles, of course, naturally completely changes the subject so that Ruth can't get this stuff in the record. And then it turns out that Dulles' mistress, Mary Bancroft, was Forbes up in Philadelphia. Right? They were they were close friends, they knew each other for years. So Dulles knows, oh my god, she can't start talking about Arthur Young and Ruth Forbes. The whole thing will be exposed. I'm doomed. You know, everything comes out. No, 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 no. So he goes and he changes the subject completely. Ruth never gets the stuff into the record. You know, so I started digging and digging. And, you know, Sinister Forces really is based on essentially saying what happened? What was all that about in 1953? And with Arthur Young and with the Nine and with all of this, you have direct links into the Yuri Geller stuff. Uh, you know, the Israeli psychic who's bending spoons and all of that. You go back into the, right. the remote viewing uh, stuff. All of this came out of that group, nine people. Whatever in happens to Yuri Geller anyway? I He's still around. Still, still bending around. spoons or what? Still is. Oh, yeah. He has websites. He's very active. He does, uh, you know, professional stuff for people. People hire him to find stuff, to find oil wells or water or whatever. I mean, I don't know how successful he really is, but he's still around. He's still active. Hmm. Interesting. The government spent a, a crazy amount of money too on remote viewing projects uh, back then, yeah. and especially in the sixties uh, and seventies. And uh, a lot of resources were spent into these things, and they, they kind of like abandoned them, which is I always find that a little bit odd. Do you think they did they they succeed in any of these projects, or were they just a complete failures? Well, there's you know there's two schools of thought on that. I mean, I've talked to people who were very involved in the intelligence community. Uh, during that same period, who poo-poo the entire thing of remote viewing, think there's nothing to it, it was smoke and mirrors, there wasn't anything statistically significant. And at the same time, I talked to people also in the intelligence community who uh, say, yes, there was something to it, yes, they did find certain things they were looking for, uh, I think a Soviet submarine at one point, and other stuff that they actually were useful for. Uh, the problem with remote viewing is that it wasn't enough of a science that you could, um, you would get 100% uh, reliability on it. So getting actionable intelligence from remote viewing turned out to be more difficult than they had anticipated, although they did see, you know, results. I mean, the results were there. It was just a question of how do we handle it? How do we analyze the information we get from remote viewing to make it much more reliable as an intelligence source? And I think that was probably part of the problem. But there will be people who argue that it was much more, um, much more powerful than has been let on. Uh, there are others, though, who completely poo-poo it and say, no, it never really worked. I've been combing through thousands of pages of declassified remote viewing documents 
uh, coming out of SRI in California and, you know, CIA sponsored programs, U.S. military sponsored programs, all going up to like the 70s and I guess maybe the 80s. Uh, eventually the, pl- the plug was pulled on it by Congress. Um, they didn't want to have any kind of funding for remote viewing anymore because there was this, uh, sort of a witchcraft hysteria, you know, the satanic cult survivor stuff was going on, and remote viewing looked too much like witchcraft to some of the congressmen who were sort of born-again Christians, and they decided, no, we can't fund this stuff, it's evil, it's satanic, or whatever, and so they wanted to pull the funding. But I've heard rumors, and uh, I talk about this in a novel that I'm that's coming out next month uh, on December 1st called The Lovecraft Code, I heard rumors that remote viewing had been brought back again uh, during the hunt for Osama bin Laden, hmm, that they were, you know, actively recruiting remote viewers. Not that it was their central, you know, form of intelligence, but it, as a, as an auxiliary form or an ancillary form of intelligence gathering, that there were remote viewers that were, uh, hired or recruited, you know, for that purpose. And then after Osama was found, maybe they kept, they kept them on. One thing I, I want to point out though that's interesting, because I heard you talking in the beginning of the show about, Adolf Hitler, did he survive and the body and then Osama bin Laden and they didn't right. find a body? Um, interesting thing, there's more coincidences. Adolf Hitler supposedly committed suicide on April 30th, mm-hmm. 1945, right? right? Osama bin Laden was supposedly killed May, the night of May 1st to May 2nd, almost the same day, right? Oh, although oh. many years later. Right, right. Neither body was ever seen. Right. And Osama's was dumped into the ocean. Right, according to mm-hmm. the reports that we have. Right. Uh, Hitler was eventually, the Soviets, the KGB, claimed they had the body, dug up the body in 1970, and had it cremated and his ashes thrown into the river. So they both had water burials. They were both notorious anti-Semites. You know, they both died on almost the same day, um, or supposedly died on almost the same day. There's just a lot of similarities between the two that I thought was pretty striking. When I heard about Osama bin Laden the first time, I thought, wow, that's a strange date to pick, you know. It sort of has resonance, you know, with, with the Hitler thing. Right. And I guess we're never going to see a body, and of course we never did. Which, um, I mean, how odd is that to, to you know, not bring a body forward and at least have uh, evidence that the entire United States, uh, you know, could see and say, okay, we definitely got him. I mean, to just, you know, throw a body in the ocean and let the, uh, you know, the, the elements have their way with them. I mean, how odd is that for us to do something like that? That's to me, that's bizarre. I don't think we would ever do something like that. I don't think so. I mean, I imagine there must be photographs in existence of the body because they would have had to. They had to ID the body, right? Uh, so they had medical personnel on staff that were, you know, right there ready to make sure they really had the guy. So they had to investigate him. They had to look at the body. I'm sure they took photographs of of the body of the corpse and probably one day those things will surface i don't know what the reason was i've heard all sorts of reasons why they didn't want to inflame you know passions in the middle east or do this or do that or you know martyr him any more than they they had to so they gave him this sort of unceremonious dumping in the ocean like you know basically that's it you know like dumping garbage basically right, and they, they were going to take that toilet, approach basically. yeah they were going to take that approach to it and which is you know Fine, I guess. Which is uh, the odd, Hitler thing, though. Considering, yeah, not to cut you off, but considering how uh, they ended up with Saddam Hussein, where they actually had a, almost a public uh, hanging of, of the man. Oh, yeah. I mean, right. considering yeah. the, right. the differences between, between the two, I mean, that's, it's very odd either way. And, and Gaddafi, for that reason, for that, for that yeah, matter. Gaddafi, yeah. Gaddafi, too, was very visibly murdered, you know. Uh, so, yeah, sure. You know, those were all very visible signs, but for some reason Osama was, was you know, deep-sixed. Um, and, you know, the Hitler thing, I wrote a book about this called Ratline, 
um, in which, you know, I came across a Hitler survival story in Indonesia. Right. <laughs> of all places. <laughs> you know, so, you know, and he's, he's married. There's a photograph of him married, <laughs> not just to a Latina, in this case, it's to a, a Muslima, to a Muslim woman, uh, in Indonesia, and he converted to Islam. This character who, many say was Hitler, had converted to Islam in the last years of his life to marry this Muslim woman and then died mysteriously uh, in 1970, very mysteriously to my way of thinking, and coincided almost uh, within a month or two of when the KGB decides they're going to dig up Hitler's body and destroy it forever. So there was this odd juxtaposition of him dying at the end of January 1970, the guy in Indonesia, and then Hitler being dug up, I think it was in April of 1970, by Andropov, the head of the KGB at the time, who for some reason, God knows why, decided, okay, we got to go and find this body. It's buried in East Germany. Uh, I believe it was in Magdeburg, underneath the KGB headquarters in their parking lot. And he says, go dig up the bodies and destroy them. Everybody forgot there was a body there. <laughs> you know, I mean, what? Hitler's body? Are you kidding me? Go and go and find it. It's, it's at this spot, you know, dig up the bodies and destroy them. Hitler was Eva Braun. It was the entire Goebbels family. And their little dog too. Oh my so God. all of these bodies dog. were taken out, <laughs> even the dog. And they destroyed all these bodies, and you know, the ashes got scattered into the, the uh, tributary of the River Elba, I think. So it's like, what? You know, there was so much mystery around Hitler's uh, body, his death, uh, his supposed death, his possible escape. Uh, there's so much nonsense been written about it since since 1945. I mean, the the book that really settled it by Hugh Trevor Roper is the one that say, oh, yes, we definitely know Hitler committed suicide. Uh, they tried to cremate his body. Uh, they half cremated it, and that was it. That's the end of it. He was really dead. There's nothing to see here. Move along. And the backstory of that is that Trevor Roper, a British guy, very an academic, very well-schooled kind of guy, an officer in uh, British intelligence, was told to go. He had three months here to go and find out, you know, and and find the proof that Hitler actually committed suicide in the bunker. That's your job. Get the testimony that he committed suicide in the bunker. You have three months. I know you don't speak German. <laughs> I know you can't interrogate wow. the witnesses in Russia or what the ones job. the Americans have. You can just interrogate the ones we have. But run around. you got three months. Here's your budget. At the end of three months, I want a report showing Hitler died in the bunker. And that's what he did. And that operation was called Operation Nursery, you know, like we're all a bunch of kids at nursery right. school, and we're going to take any story they give us, and that's what they did. It was a cover story. They had no proof. They had no evidence. And as it turned out, the evidence they did have was fabricated. It was faked. There were Nazi collaborators you know, doing stuff with dentures that didn't make any sense. You had prisoners of war in Russia, the Nazi prisoners that they had, giving entirely different stories, you know. The whole thing was a, was, a, was a disaster. So, you know, for many years, I believe that everybody believed Hitler committed suicide April 30th, 1945, in the bunker. End of story. I believe that since I was a kid. I believe that until about 10 years ago. Mm, and then I started getting the story in Indonesia, and I yeah. said, no, nah, that can't be true. You know, and I didn't think it was true. But when I started to research it more, it turned out that an archaeologist that I know in Connecticut was the guy who had gone to Moscow to look at the skull that they claimed they had was Hitler's skull. And he's the guy who examined it and came back to the States and said, no, nah, that's not Hitler's skull. It's the skull of a woman. And it's the wrong age even to be Eva Braun. And, you know, I don't know who they think they're kidding, but it's just not true. And uh, he's the state archaeologist of 
Connecticut. I mean, he's, he's a reputable archaeologist. He's not just some guy they picked up, right? So here's this guy who's done a lot of very good work in, in, in his field coming back and saying, no, I'm sorry, that's not Hitler's skull. They don't have Hitler's body. So, um, you know, what are you going to do? You know, <laughs> so here I am now. My entire worldview completely shattered. Rocks. I'm thinking, well, if Hitler escaped, then, you know, now what? What's on the 18 and a half minutes of the Oval Office tapes? Come I on, think, people. I think Hitler know. really did escape to uh, to Antarctica, and he's in the uh, hollow earth or somewhere. That's really what happened. He's in the hollow earth with the UFOs, for sure. No, you know, I, I at this you, point, I, I'll believe it at this point. I linked you here the uh, article that I had seen uh, a while back, uh, not too long ago, but I read it uh, a couple months ago, uh, which uh, shows the image of Hitler and how he looked later on. And it says that he fled to Argentina originally. And uh, yep. it shows if you go scroll down, you see the image of him and his uh, future wife in 1984. So he lived a long time, if uh, this is uh, true. Well, that's about a hundred years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He lived a good, healthy life. Uh, this scumbag. Yeah, if, if that's true. I mean, there was a lot. I mean, Hoover believed that Hitler had escaped. I mean, Hoover kept a open file on Adolf Hitler uh, through the sixties. I mean, he was he was never convinced that Hitler had died in the bunker. And few people in the high levels of government really did believe it. You know, they they thought it was just a story. So they they kind they kind of ignored it. I mean, it's like yeah, whatever. Um, so Hoover thought it was. His agents were always reporting. I have all those files, and anybody can if they go to the FBI site. You can download all that stuff and take mm-hmm. a look at it yourself. I mean, it's all there. Mm-hmm. But the, the Indonesia stuff was really weird because in, in my book, in Ratline, I have photographs of that guy with his wife. You know, And uh, he looks identical to the early pictures of Hitler when Hitler was a corporal in the German army during World War One. This It's a remarkable you know, likeness. And if Hitler had been sick, if he had lost weight, he would have looked pretty much like he looked when he was a, a skinny 20-year-old in, in, the, in the German army during World War I. So it's, um, you know, there, there was something to it. And I've seen copies of the passport that he used uh, to get into uh, Indonesia. And, uh, you know, those passport photos and the year that he was born and the place he was born, they're both Austrian. The guy in Indonesia and Hitler were both Austrians. They were both born around the same year, exactly the same height, yep. uh, same handlebar, sort of Charlie Chaplin mustache, the whole thing, you know. And so it made me really wonder if maybe this really was, you know, somebody who was using faked papers to get into Indonesia, which would have been the safest place for him. I don't think Hitler would have gone to Argentina. I think, you know, anybody would have dropped a dime on him. You know, he didn't trust right. his people anymore. His people tried to kill him in July of '44. After the uh, you know, D-Day invasion, so there was Operation Valkyrie. His generals were against him. He was hiding out. He didn't know who to trust. Would he have gone to Argentina like all is forgiven and hang out with Mangala and Barbie and and everybody else? You know, uh, I mean, it's it. I don't know. You know, well, I think he would have gone I th- I someplace the, where he would really have been safe. I think people with, with the kind of wealth though that Hitler and like uh, Osama bin Laden would have uh, would be able to buy their passage uh, somewhere. Uh, discreet and safe. So, I mean, whether it's Argentina or anywhere in the world, uh, I think, you know, the kind of power that he wielded at the time, I'm pretty sure he had a, a fail-safe program ready for when, you know, the it hit the fan and he had to, like, disappear. Uh, not, only yeah, that, sure. not only that, we know for a fact that not, not only Hitler, but uh, bin Laden had him, uh, Saddam Hussein had him. Uh, these, all these folks uh, in major political power, especially dictators, have lookalikes. Dozens of yep. lookalikes just for sure. these kind of scenarios, and uh, it would not shock me at all if what we you know ended up seeing the body that we saw was that of a lookalike that was shot and killed and 
you know, and uh, they said he committed suicide. That no, but, but that's that's actually part of that is what happened. The Soviet yeah, Union yeah. released a photograph showing the Soviet, the Russian soldiers around a body they said was Hitler. Right, As right. it turned out, it was one of the doubles. Right, right? right. It was revealed to be a double. They knew it was a double. Uh, Hitler had at least two doubles that we know of. We know their names. Uh, there might have been more. Uh, Argentina, I think, to me, was problematic only because all the Nazis were in Argentina. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, of course, Israel had gone and, and gotten Eichmann out of Buenos Aires, right, around 1960. So I think that Hitler would have been scared to death that the Israelis would come looking for him. I mean, he was a much bigger target than, than Eichmann. So if I was Hitler, would I hang out with a bunch of my fellow Nazis that I couldn't trust, who maybe could make a couple hundred thousand dollars if they, you know, told Mossad where I was living? So I don't know. I don't know if Argentina made sense. I mean, I followed all those stories, of course, and they're very suggestive. And he obviously had escape routes planned. I mean, um, had to. The, uh, yeah. the well, I mean, what's his name? The guy who took over from Hitler uh, for like a week after uh, Hitler's supposed suicide. Uh, the admiral said that uh, you know we have we've have you know places set up for him. He made speeches to uh, naval cadets before the war ended, saying you know the Fuhrer will be taken care of. We've got locations. There was the Eden Hotel in Argentina that I wrote about, you know, which was run by financiers of the Third Reich. And that was a remote hotel in Argentina where he was welcomed at any time to, to, to hang out if he was on the run. All of this makes sense. And yet, wouldn't he have been safer in a Muslim country on the other side of the world where, you know, Mossad would have had a very hard time penetrating? I mean, it was easier to get into Argentina. Uh, because ethnicity, you know, language and everything else. But uh, Indonesia would have been very hard for anybody to snatch Hitler out of there, you know, or a country like that, someplace in Asia. And during my research, I found a lot of Nazis had made it to Asia, and Hitler's closest friend in the world, up until the, the last day in the bunker, was a guy called Walter Hewell, or Havel, H-E-W-E-L. Walter Havel was one of the guys who marched with Hitler during the Beer Hall Putsch in 1923, when he was just a kid, this guy was pro-Hitler from the very beginning, was arrested with Hitler, was in jail, uh, got out of jail, and then eventually wound up in Indonesia, running tea plantations and stuff, and setting up an entire elaborate Nazi party apparatus throughout the Indonesian ar- archipelago. And again, all very well documented. At, once Hitler comes to power, Havel is called back, and he serves as kind of an ambassador at large for Hitler, and Hitler loves having the guy around, and he's one of the last people to leave the bunker. And they called him Surabaya Wali because he kept talking about Surabaya, which is in Indonesia. It's a famous port city. And because Wali had all these jokes and all these stories, these exotic stories about Indonesia, these are the last stories that Hitler was hearing in 1945, in April of 45. We don't know what happened to Havel either. There's no body. There's no corpse of Walter Havel. So, you know, there's an Indonesian connection there somehow. No, I definitely agree that it, it is a better safe haven for Hitler, by all means, uh, uh, in every aspect than Argentina. Uh, it, but still, regardless of where he ended up, I do believe that almost 100% that he survived and disappeared somewhere. After yeah, I, I'm, I'm tending towards that. I'm tending towards that belief myself. You know, yeah. I don't think he was as sick as he was portrayed. He was being treated by a quack doctor, Theodore Morell, who was giving him cocaine and all sorts of oh, wild. Yeah, yeah. You know, Which is ironic, by speech. the way, because Osama bin Laden, of course, had also he was one of the dialysis, and I mean he yeah. was not healthy mm-hmm. himself. So here we have a repeating theme Apparently. where these dictators are, you know, all sick and, and going through the you know, medical issues. 
Well, Morell was sort of fired like two weeks before the end of, of, 40, of April 45 by Hitler and told to, to leave. And Hitler started to get better. <laughs> His health began to improve <laughs> once Morell left because Morell was keeping him doped up. Basically, ah, makes sense. he was keeping him really. He was a quack wow. doctor. He was selling stuff. He's selling his own medicines and stuff. So he had Hitler sort of doped up during this this period. People say Hitler had Parkinson's. The problem is he was never diagnosed by any doctor as having Parkinson's. You know, nobody actually examined him except Morell, and Morell would never have, have you know said Parkinson's. So we don't know if Hitler was really that sick or not. But my theory, and it's just a theory, it's a speculation, is that no one knew about Eva Braun either. We didn't know about Eva Braun till the end of the war. Right. So Eva Braun was this mysterious figure that he supposedly married the day before they both committed suicide. Right. Wouldn't it have been great, a great escape attempt, to have Hitler with his mustache shaved off, right, sitting in a wheelchair being pushed by a blonde nurse, you know, through the the rubble of Berlin, and Uh getting him out that way. No one is looking for a couple. They were looking for Hitler. No one knew he was married. No one knew that Eva Braun existed. She was kept a secret from the German people. Hitler didn't want anybody to know about her. Just the high, the high level staff knew about it. Uh, you know, no one's, no one's expecting Hitler had a wife. Right. Much yes, one, much less one, you know, much younger and, you know, the sort of blonde, blue eyed type was, you know, put her in a nurse's uniform and have her push the wheelchair. No one's going to stop and say, is this Hitler? Right. So they could have gotten out that way. Uh, that makes perfect sense. Wow. Completely. That nice. really does. Peter, Peter I've, I've got a quick uh, go, question go, for go you. Ahead, go ahead. So, actually, go ahead, Jack, because I'm no, going to no, take no, the no. conversation in a whole other direction. No, so. no, no, go ahead. My, my question would be a lot sillier. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my question, because we've kind of covered, you know, the basis of the scientists that came over to work on the UFOs and, you know, possibly, you know, had something to do with the atomic bomb and this, that, and the other. So my question to you is, in your research, you know, what, as far as the occult goes, what were the Nazis really interested in uh, that, that you're reading? Was it a... a you know, a wide variety of things like the remote viewing and, you know, this, that, and the other, or were they kind of really interested in just one aspect of it? Well, when you say the Nazis, it really was the SS was was the the real, you know, uh, repository for all this occult lore. Heinrich Himmler, who was the head of the SS, was a fanatic about all this stuff. Uh, he had a personal astrologer. Um, he had his masseur was uh, was a guy also involved in new age stuff and new age remedies and that sort of thing. But Himmler himself believed in reincarnation. He believed in ritual magic. He believed in the powers of meditation and of aligning oneself with one's ance- with one's ancestors. Uh, he had a guy on his staff called uh, Weistor, um, who was a former mental patient, <laughs> but who was a man who was a mystic and claimed that he had complete memory of all of his lives going back 10,000 years and therefore could tell Himmler exactly what the Aryan people, you know, the German people, the Teutonic people were doing, you know, 5,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago. He could recreate the religions of the time and all this other stuff. And for a long time, Himmler kind of believed him. Uh, another guy on Himmler's personal staff was Otto Rahn. And Otto Rahn was the guy looking for the Holy Grail on Himmler's behalf. Oh, wow. You know, and that's very well documented. Otto Rahn wrote a number of books which have been translated. They're in English now. When I started doing the research, they weren't, so I had a devil of a time finding them. But uh, this was a very well-educated guy as well. He was a scholar, and he believed in all of this. A lot of the stuff we have today, a lot of the sort of Da Vinci Code stuff, the Knights Templar, the Cathars, the Holy Grail, all that came out of Otto Rahn. That was his bailiwick. That was what he was doing back in the 1930s and the 1940s. Uh, he joined the SS basically to become part of Himmler's personal staff. 
And at some point, very early on in the war, um, he died mysteriously. Uh, he died on during a so-called mountain climbing expedition. The mountain he was climbing was not much more than a hill. Uh, and it was said he died of exposure, which was, it was in the spring. There's a lot of, you know, sort of stupid stories about how Otto Rahn died. None of them really make a lot of sense. But he was in the SS. Uh, it was rumored he was homosexual and may have been killed because of that. Himmler had no, um, uh, tolerance, uh, toleration at all for homosexuality, which was pretty funny considering the SS. Um, some of its rituals, which were extremely gay. Yeah. And yeah. it's just really weird, you know, that there was this guy who was, you know, exactly on Himmler's wavelength when all these ancient religions are concerned and all of the, the, the occult practices and the magical practices that predated Christianity. And here was a guy that actually was looking for the grail and spent a lot of time in the south of France near Montségur, which is the, where the, the Cathar, last Cathar stronghold. Spent a lot of time down there, kind of an eccentric guy, and yet um, would be, you know, basically executed by the SS at some point, even after he's published these books and he's done speeches on behalf of Himmler and all the rest of it. So you have the Otto Rahn uh, connection. You have the Weistor connection. Weistor is the guy who designed the Death's Head ring for the SS with all the mystical runes on it. I mean, that's how powerful he was. And then you had the Tibet expedition. The very famous 1938 expedition that Himmler financed, he sent the SS to Tibet, you know, to find out what ancient mystical secrets they had. So they went to Tibet. The, I've seen the film footage. I've seen the photography. Um, it's tremendous stuff, material they collected, ethnographic, you know, material, anthropological stuff and archaeological stuff. They came back with all sorts of artifacts and books from Tibet. And one of the anthropologists who was a member of that expedition then later became one of the Nazi Germany's war criminals. Here's a guy who spent, you know, months at the feet of the lamas in Tibet, uh, in Lhasa and Shigatse and all these other places in, in Tibet, uh, had unparalleled access to Tibetan culture, religion, all the rest of it, which we tend to think of in very high spiritual terms. This guy comes back, Bruno Beger was his name. He came back to uh, Germany, and then uh, during the war, he basically set up a museum or was building a museum of anthropology and he needed skeletal material. He needed skeletons, right? So he would go to the camps and say, and he would look at all the prisoners and say, I want this one, this one, and this one. You know, be careful not to damage any of the skeletal material when you kill him, right? So people would be killed. More than 80 people were murdered uh, for this reason. More than 80 people were murdered, to to supply him with skeletons for this museum of anthropology. Unreal. Yeah. And this guy was never really prosecuted for the war. He lived until a ripe old age in Germany. Um, and he remained a friend of, of Tibet and, you know, the Dalai Lama. He had his photograph taken with the Dalai Lama later on in his life, you know, long after the war was over. Um, he even wrote a very beautiful uh, depiction of what life was like in uh, in Lhasa back in 1938-39, and then abruptly it was taken down. People started to complain, this is a war criminal. You know, you don't need to be associated with this, uh, Mr. Dalai Lama, you know. So it was just so weird, the whole, the whole connection between Tibet and the Nazis. And this is part of their occult fascination. They were... You know, it was sort of theosophy was part of this. This was this idea of different races having different spiritual 
powers and capabilities right. that other races did not have. You know, um, it, it's when you're asking the question about the Nazis and occultism, it's a broad subject. They were involved in all sorts of, of things. They were interested in everything. Uh, and they, it was used against them, quite frankly. Um, they be, the British intelligence began developing these fake Nostradamus prophecies, right? Uh, that they claim were Nostradamus prophecies, prophesying the end of the war, turning out really badly for Germany. And they would drop these these prophecies, these pamphlets all over the German countryside because the German people were still fascinated by astrology. Uh, Rudolf Hess, of course, had famously flown to England, um, I believe it was May of 1940, in order to you know make some sort of a connection with the the British, uh, the fascist element within the British monarchy. And uh, he timed his flight according to astrological principles, and that gave Hitler the excuse to basically ban astrology in the Third Reich and have all the astrologers arrested, all the cultists arrested, thrown into the camps, and then slowly but surely weed, weed them out and pick out the ones he liked. Right. So Himmler saved you know, his astrologer from the camps, uh, Wilhelm Wolf, uh, and other people were, were taken out and given special remote viewing uh uh, responsibilities or other occult responsibilities uh, as you know as time went on so there was the there was a cult war as I wrote about in unholy alliance a kind of cult war between the Nazis who were you know uh, cultists and then the other cultists who were anti-nazi within Germany itself and then the British got involved and then the British intelligence services hired people like Dennis Wheatley a very famous who became a very famous novelist and a cult yep. novelist um, and Ian Fleming, mm-hmm. Ian Fleming and Dennis Wheatley were part of the same uh, unit of British intelligence, and then they went and hired Aleister Crowley. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Right. So, then, wow. so Aleister Crowley, the most you know, this famous magician, yeah. the guy who created an entire movement around himself, mm-hmm. was actually handpicked mm-hmm. by British intelligence, saying, "Well, you have a lot of friends in Germany, and you you belong to the OTO, which was started in Germany, and." All this other stuff, you must know a lot of people, you must know how they think, what can we do to, you know, get the cultists to go up against the Third Reich. So he was seconded to British intelligence for a while. They were toying with using him as well. So you had Dennis Wheatley, Ian Fleming, and Aleister Crowley all in the same room at one point. Isn't that phenomenal? That's amazing. So you have James, the James Bond creator, the Dennis Wheatley, Aleister Crowley, and they're all hanging out there saying, what can we do to destroy Hitler? (laughs) You know, it, it's oh it's so goodness. funny because I've always loved like the Indiana Jones movies, especially the uh, stuff where they bring the Nazis into into the storyline, and I yeah. always find that fascinating. I mean, how accurate do you think the, those movies were? And, and how, you know, how soon after Nazi Germany went down uh, did you know some of these stories start coming out where people were, you know, were knowledgeable of the occult connection to Hitler and the Nazi Germans? It wasn't well, too far it, after, it was right. Not too much after. I mean, it was coming out in drips and drabs, but it really hit in 1960 when the uh, French, uh, two French authors, Pauls and Berger, wrote Le Matin des Musiciens, which is the morning of the magicians. That book was, was a, was a bestseller all over the world. It was a bestseller in Europe, in France. It went through dozens and dozens of, of printings. And then it became the morning of the magicians in this country and in England. And it went through another couple of dozen printings. And this was the book that really put the idea of Nazi occultism on the map mm. because Paulus and Berger were French resistance fighters during the war. They, um, they had done uh, a lot of research on their own in terms of things like alchemy, um, weird you know, scientific things that were being studied by the Allies during the war. 
Um, so they wrote about that. They wrote about uh, the Thule Gesellschaft. Sometimes it's probably the first time people had heard of the Thule Society, which was the occult secret society that was meeting in the Four Seasons Hotel in Munich in 1918 and 1919. Um, it was really the Thule Society, a secret society based on occult principles, which was also a kind of um, a German supremacist organization, right? An anti-communist organization um, that triggered, you know, Hitler's um, emergence as a leader in, in in what would become Nazi Germany in 1918 and 1919. 1918 is the end of World War One. Germany has been humiliated; they've been defeated, uh, and there's the secret society meeting in in this hotel in Munich. And at one point. The city of Munich is being invaded by communist soldiers. I mean, Germans who uh, then joined the Communist Party after the Russian Revolution. So now they're communists. They're the Reds, as they call them. And they were coming into the city and they were going to take over Munich. Well, they raided the offices of the Thule Society. They took everyone out uh, up against the uh, a wall and shot them, murdered them. And wow. that was April 30th of 1919. Again, April 30th shows up. So they're murdered, and that ignited an, a revolt in Munich against the Reds. So the Thule Gesellschaft, this the secret society, the Thule Society, an occult secret society, is then marching in the streets with machine guns, right? <laughs> and they're fighting the communists in the streets, in street-to-street, building-to-building battle. And then they're joined by other forces, including um, the Stahlhelm uh, uh, Freikorps. A Freikorps is like a... Um, uh, a, a militia, basically we would call it a, a militia in this country. So this militia comes in and they have helmets, the, the famous Nazi sort of helmet, uh, the Wehrmacht style helmet, with swastikas inscribed on them. This is in 1919 already. Mm. And the swastika was the emblem of the Thule Society. That was their right. symbol. Right, right. It was a swastika over a dagger with oak leaves. That was their symbol. So now we have these groups marching into Munich wearing swastikas on their helmets. You know, and Hitler is in the middle of all of this because he's sent now to investigate what's going on with the Thule Society and with something called the German Workers' Party, which then, of course, he turns into the National Socialist German Workers' Party, and the rest is history. That becomes the Nazi Party. So this is all part of this. I mean, it was, it was a secret society in Munich that started this. It was an occult society that really started this immense backlash against communism in Germany. And then Munich showed the rest of Germany how to do it. We get rid of communists the old-fashioned way. We we murder them basically. So that's what that's what that was all about. I mean, that's how Hitler, you know, cut his milk teeth on on you know rabble rousing and revolt against the establishment and all of this. This was because of a secret society. Because the members of the Thule Society were quite often the same people who were members of the German Workers' Party. They had a cross. They, they met in the same hotel in the same place in the same rooms. I mean, it was it was a you know all the same people. So it it was just it was like that it was that weird. So occultism was there. Hitler's early days in Vienna was spent reading a magazine called Ostara, and Ostara is an occult magazine. It was run by a guy called Lance von Liebenfels, who was a former Catholic uh, priest and monk, who then left to form his own group called the Order of New Templars, and he had his own magazine Ostara, which was anti-Semitic rag, basically showing the Jews as being this. Um, this savage, undisciplined, spiritually inferior race that was endangering, you know, white Aryan German women, you know, basically. So you had pictures of people who looked like Charlie Manson, you know, going up <laughs> against these tall Nordic blonde types. 
So, you know, this is, this is a standard fare with a lot of, you know, pseudo, you know, philosophical, religious, occult stuff thrown in there and all sorts of speculations about new age stuff. And Hitler devoured these, these things. He devoured Ostara. You know, he loved it. I mean, he was a, he was a, a, a lover of Wagner. Right. This is all straight out of Wagner too. This guy, you know, idolized Wagner. He would stand through the ring cycle because he couldn't afford a seat to sit down, so he paid the cheapest ticket just so that he could stand and listen to Wagner. Anyone who's heard the ring cycle, you know, <laughs> we're talking about about 30 hours of opera there. Oh my and this is, this is how fanatic that he was. So the idea of symbolism and display and ritual was very much part of Hitler's makeup. Oh. I don't believe he was an occultist in any way, shape, or form, and I make that point clear in, in my writings. I don't believe he belonged to any cult or anything like that. He would never have wanted to join a club that would have him as a member, you know what I mean? But he was a, he was had Himmler for that. You know, Himmler was the, the occultist. Himmler was the cultist. He was the guy who was going to do all the ritual stuff and, you know, do all this weird, all this other weird stuff that Hitler loved, he was interested in, and he loved to talk about it. I mean, you talk, want, you talk about symbology, I mean, just the use of the swastika, which goes back hundreds and hundreds sure. and hundreds of years. Oh, I mean, that's, yeah, that's that was symbol. a sacred symbol. And yeah, that's the symbol. Nazis sure. turned it into then. this horrible symbol of right. hate, and it was I mean, not, yeah. never meant to be that, ever. That you symbol know? will never recover. Like, that's the un, you know redeemable symbol. I mean, you can't bring that back and make right. it nice and fluffy again, because that's it. It's... You know, it's you can't forever because of Hitler. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. That's that's what happened. And anybody who doubts that the Nazi Party was a cult, you know, all they have mm-hmm. to do is look at that symbol. Yeah. That tells you the whole story right there. You can't you can't walk away and say it was a political party like any political party. It obviously wasn't. Clearly wasn't. Uh, Peter, we, we, man, we're almost out of time. I can't believe the time flies so so quickly on these shows. We've got to have you back. Yeah, on the this show is a lot quicker than usual. Uh, Peter, are you, you going to give any uh, speeches in the near future? Going to be anywhere that you, you want to promote real quick uh, for anybody who's listening and uh, you know who follows your work and should follow your work. Uh, no speeches necessarily. I'm going to be on some podcasts in the next, uh, few weeks and stuff that, uh, that's going to be going on. But cool. for the most part, though, uh, my book, uh, Lovecraft Code is coming out a month from today. Uh, and that's a novel, but it's, uh, it involves the Middle East. It involves Lovecraft. It involves, uh, mysticism, occultism, you could say. It involves a lot of weird cults in the Middle East and, uh, a lot of other stuff that you wouldn't expect to find in a novel like that. I finally, and publishing a novel. I've been writing novels for years, but I finally uh, am publishing this one because I think it's it's really you know it's about what's going on today in a lot of ways, but it puts it in a kind of an occult perspective. Mm. So uh, something people might want to, uh, to to read because the Lovecraft stuff um, dovetails very neatly with you know what's going on in the Middle East uh, and around the world with cults and you know the insurgents in. in cultic activity and you know i view the terrorist groups as cults basically mm-hmm. and so this is something that uh, that i'm writing about in the lovecraft code so have a look look we're only a few days away uh so i'm gonna ask you what do you think uh, trump or hillary <laughs> <laughs> you expect me to answer that come on, uh, come on here. no pressure no pressure <laughs> well there, there's a there's another party i like it's called the cthulhu for america party I, i'm, I'm missing <laughs> it that's there. what i'm talking about there you go I, peter I like their slogan. It's no more years. You know. <laughs> uh, Peter, you're awesome. Thank you so much for being a part of the show here tonight with us and uh, partaking on a, an hour here on Skywatchers Radio. And uh, we definitely have to have you back on soon because I mean the the time just flew by, man. It was uh, a lot of fun having you here with us. 
I, I had a lot of fun myself. Thanks a lot, guys. What's your website address? I, I, I forgot completely to ask you. It's basically just my name. It's www.peterlavenda.com. And Lavenda is spelled L-E-V as in Victor, E-N-D-A. So it's peterlavenda.com. peterlavenda.com. There you go. Uh, again, guys, we'll be back next week with uh, another fascinating episode here on Sky Watchers Radio. Who do we have next week? Uh, Crystal, do you know? Any idea? No? Uh, off the top. <laughs> I know that we have a lot of guests booked up until That's December. That's an easy and Because we've run a couple of reruns, <laughs> we probably have them booked up until January. That's what I know. I know that you want to be here every Tuesday night listening yes. to our fascinating guests. Now, next week we have uh, a gentleman go. straight off the ranch. James Gilliland is going to be here with us on Skywatchers Radio. So uh, stick around for that next week. That's going to be a whole lot of fun. So like always, I say, keep your eyes to the skies. Keep paying attention to what's going on around you. And by all means, vote for Trump. <laughs>